0: We are launching into this holy new journey today. Um, And i put it off for a long time, mainly because I wasn't real sure how I wanted to approach it. I knew that God was kind of leading me to this direction to begin a walk through the book of John. I kind of knew that back in November, but I wasn't really sure how I wanted to approach it because I knew that I didn't just want to take the stories or the sort of historicity of Jesus and retell that. I I do that uh, quite often with other things that we do, but I wanted to do something wholly different, if you will. And so I took some time praying through it and thinking through it and decided that essentially what we're going to do was just kind of move verse by verse with one overarching, undeniable, unkind of questionable goal, and that is this. I want you to see Jesus. That's it. My entire goal for the next time is that you would see Jesus. The Gospel of John is a fascinating book. It's the fourth gospel. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. But the overarching principle that John is reaching towards is that he wants you to see the deity of Jesus Christ. He wants you to understand that God and the person of Jesus came to rescue and redeem you. John's entire gospel is that you would see Jesus. So for me to preach anything else or anything more or less would be a failure. So our whole goal for this study, this thing is that we might simply see Jesus. Now, let me tell you a little word, and I did this a couple of years ago, but I wanna tell you a little bit about my style of preaching and, and kind of how I preach so that you can understand what we're getting ready to get ourselves into. I love preaching line by line or verse by verse or word by word or however you wanna say it through scripture. I do not like, and I cannot do very well, topical preaching, and topical preaching Is exactly what it sounds like. It's taking topics and trying to preach through them, like how to be a better friend, or how to have a better marriage, or how to ward off evil, or whatever. There's nothing wrong inherently with topical preaching. In fact, most of our churches are filled with it. And when you preach the word, um, I mean, it's it's about things anyway. There's nothing wrong with it. Problem is, it becomes a little dangerous when we begin to grab scripture from here and there and support our topics, right? But as long as we're preaching scripture, topical preaching is fine. It's just. It's just not what I do. It's not what I do well. It's not what I love, right? I love being able to look at the whole of Scripture in its context and with its history and be able to walk through piece by piece and not dodge the places that we don't like. See, topical preaching allows us to pick and choose, and it allows us to dodge these giant sections of Scripture that we don't know what to do with that are really hard, that are somewhat uncomfortable, that are theologically challenging, or that will throw political or all kinds of things into chaos when we utter that word. So we create topics to try and engage and entertain a room full of people. And when we do that, people come back. And they bring other people. And it's a great growth strategy for the church to say, we're going to preach through things like, I'm going to do the next seven weeks on dating. You know how many singles we'll have here? Right? Oh man, it's talking about Jesus and dating. Because... We, and, and so we, we leverage that, right, into trying to out-entertain each other as churches. Just not my deal. I'll tell you this about our church. I'm not a great preacher. I'm probably not even a good preacher. There's a lot of places you can go that will be better teaching, better worship, better whatever. But what I promise you as we walk through this is there will, be a never, be, there will never be a Sunday where you walk out of here and go, I guess I didn't need my Bible today. Every single week, we are going to be in it, and we're going to dissect every word that we possibly can so that we might see Jesus, period. All right. That being said, the Gospel of John is fascinating. There are four Gospels. John is often referred to as the fourth Gospel. The first three are what we call the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels are, are very similar. The word synoptic actually means together with or seeing together. They're very similar. Their history accounts of Jesus. In fact, many of the, those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have the exact same verbatim wording, which leads scholars to believe that they were also relying on another source that they were kind of using because there's just stories that are told in perfect succession, and they're told really well, and they're, they're told the same way, and so they are a synoptic. They are a similar piece exploring the historicity of the life of Jesus. They are telling Jesus' story from birth to resurrection. John's gospel is entirely or wholly different. John is not interested necessarily in telling a historical account of Jesus. John's desire is that you might see the deity of Christ. In fact, two-thirds of John's gospel is devoted entirely to the last week of Jesus' life. So the 21 chapters, right, 14 of them are devoted to about seven days plus the resurrection, So he is committed to you and I seeing the deity of Jesus. He is not interested in telling you where Jesus went when he was this or what he was trying to do here. He wants you to see every movement behind every miracle or every story or everything is God. God in the incarnation, the embodiment of Christ, is moving and coming for you. It's the picture of the Gospel of John. As a book, it's broken into two main sections, or as a letter, it's broken into two main sections, if you will. There's the what's called the Book of Glory, which is the first 12 chapters, or the Book of Signs. Excuse me, the first 12 chapters, and those are all the things that Jesus does that are alluding to His deity. So there are the miracles, there are His teachings, there are all the things that are sort of setting up Jesus as God's Son, and then there's the Book of Glory which is takes place in like the last three days of Jesus' life. And it's chapters basically 13 through 21. And everything in that section in those few days is painting the picture of what's going to unfold in the last few days of Jesus' life. And the whole book is really crammed into those two things. And then there's a little 18-verse prologue and a little 21-verse epilogue. And that's the book. It's as complicated as it gets. The setup to who Jesus is as God's son, as God himself, God in the flesh— the setup for his glory, where he turns privately towards his disciples, and he begins to tell them about who he is, what he's coming to do, what he did, and what he will do once he is raised. Now, John is the brother of James. They're referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder. They're the sons of Zebedee, and Jesus calls them both the sons of thunder. John is a very prominent guy in the New Testament. In addition to writing this gospel, which all, pretty much all scholarship points to John having penned, he wrote the first, those letters of John, first, second, and third John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So he's got quite a, a, a giant voice in New Testament history, um, if you will. He's a prominent guy. He was an eyewitness to Jesus. He was a disciple. He walked around with him. He put his hand on the Jesus himself. He was there at some of the most incredible and miraculous moments. His accounts are firsthand accounts. In fact, in his gospel, he refers to himself never by name, right? Because when you wrote your own letter, you usually didn't refer to yourself by name, but he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he does it about five or six times, and later on, we'll probably get to it in about a year, but he refers to it to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love any other disciples, right? It just means that they had this incredible, special relationship. And I was telling Brandon this week, I said, do you know how much is wrapped up in the statement that John makes when he says, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves? Now, do you know, I said, do you know how much, how many things in our life would change if I believed that about myself? If I truly believed that my identity, that I could say with confidence and with power that I am the one, the disciple, the person, the creation, the being that Jesus loves. If I believed that with confidence, that my identity was so wrapped in that, you know how much that would change in us? The way we see ourselves in the mirror, the way we see ourselves in relationships, the way we see ourselves with people, that if I truly believed that my identity was that I was loved by Jesus, even in spite of all of my struggles, sins, failures, questions, darkness, fears, whatever, that I was confident enough to say, Jesus, I I know all those things, but I am loved by you, loved by you. Changes everything. Well, John refers to himself in this sort of intimate relationship that he has with Jesus as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it paints the picture for what his gospel is going to look like. John's clear, clear desire is that you might know Jesus, all right? John 17.3 is my favorite verse in the entire book. It's been a guiding verse for a large portion of my life, and I've sort of titled our entire series after that one verse. John 17.3 uh, says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John's entire gospel is wrapped up in this, that this is eternal life. Remember, eternal life doesn't begin when we die. Eternal life begins right here as I draw breath in this very moment, right? Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that essentially Jesus, God in the flesh, it we'll see today, is the key to eternal life, not just when we die, but the abundant, breath-giving, purpose-driven life right now in this moment that says, I am loved by Jesus. That's the gospel of John. And that's where we are going, that Jesus says, I love you, and I have come for you. So as we embark on this journey, we're going to tell stories. We're going to look at miracles. We're going to hear Jesus' teaching. We're also going to look at some of the most deep theology in all of Scripture. Because John's gospel is a gospel of theology. It is not a gospel of storytelling. It is a gospel of deep and rich theology that paints the picture for the whole of Christianity and sets us up to understand who Jesus was, what he came to do, and how that should change every single thing about me and about the church. So that's the journey we're going to start on. We're going to begin today. We're going to make it through the first five verses in which John is going to answer this question, Who is Jesus? And he's going to tell us six things in five verses that are foundational for us to understand before we ever ever begin one step, one foot, One moment in the life of Christ, we have to understand these truths. So before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray together. And then I'm going to work through those kind of quickly this morning. We're going to take communion together. We're going to celebrate all that God is. And we're going to begin this epic journey in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for the Scots, for Brandon and Jenny, for their beautiful children. But more so, God, what we're thankful for is that you drew them to a place where they had to ask, are we willing to say yes to you, Lord? Follow you. God, it's a, it's a question that I want at the, the center of my own life, that I want at the center of our church, that are we willing to say yes to you when you stir our hearts, even when that defies conventional wisdom and sounds insane, or even when it seems so difficult or challenging, are we willing just to say, God, I want what you want? I thank you that you've brought us here to this room from all different walks of life and backgrounds nobody here with a perfect story nobody here with every answer nobody here with everything figured out but somehow just in the same room that just says we want to see Jesus and so God I pray that, that would be the cry of our heart this morning the cry of our heart for this entire series that we would just say we just want to see Jesus so Lord reveal yourself to us take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever that means, whatever you need to say, just ask the Lord to to teach your heart. Pray for someone beside you or in front of you, behind you. We do this each week. We remind ourselves that Sunday morning or this time or my life is not actually about me, but it's about other people. God, pray for somebody else that God would intersect their life this morning, that he would reveal himself to them. He would show himself to that person. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would (laughs) teach and instruct our hearts. God, we cannot see you. God, we cannot find you. God, we cannot discover you. You have to reveal yourself to us. God, you show yourself to us. You reveal yourself to us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we take this incredibly serious. Teach our heart this morning. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer, the very word of God. Amen. So, John 1 through 18 is what we call the prologue. It's like a setup for the entire book. All right. And so it's still part of that first book of signs that I mentioned, but it's really a prologue. It kind of answers the question who is Jesus and what does he come to do? And then there's going to be an epilogue at the very end that we'll get to. But the first five verses, John addresses the question who is Jesus? Who am I getting ready to tell you about, right? Before I get into talking about John the Baptist, which is a a different John, and kind of what he came to do to prepare the way for Jesus, and, and what Jesus does when he steps on the scene, I want you to understand who I'm getting ready to tell you about, all right? And he's writing to a massively diverse audience of both Jews and Greeks that are going to be hearing about Jesus for the very first time. And remember, John's account is an eyewitness account. He was there. He was in the inner circles. He was in the very places that Jesus was. <clears throat> this is how John begins his gospel. We'll look at the first five verses together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So, John starts his gospel with perhaps the most theologically dense few verses that you will see in all of Scripture that rivals anything in Romans. John lays out some incredibly important foundational truths about not only the Trinity, but about the preexistence of Christ and about things that are going to serve as anchor points for Christian theology for 2,000 years in just these few verses. And he does it by making six claims about the person of Jesus in these short verses. And kind of before we get into those, I wanna mention something. If you read that for the very first time, Or if you're familiar with Scripture at all, you will see an immediate connection to John 1 and Genesis 1, right? So Genesis 1, God starts creation by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John 1 starts, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. Was God. It's no accident that John starts his gospel the same way that Genesis 1 starts. Genesis 1 lays the foundation for this old creation. John 1 lays the foundation for the new creation, but it's not a separate story. It's the same story. John 1 is the pinnacle, the climax, the peak of God's redemptive movement in humanity that began with the creation of the world and is coming to a head in the person of Jesus. Christ and John partners his gospel together with the Genesis account. In the beginning was God. And he starts the same way. In the beginning was God. And John makes his first claim about Jesus by saying, In the beginning was the Word. The word there is capitalized W in your Bible. He refers to Jesus as the word. Now, there's a lots of reasons for this, but that Greek word is actually the, re- the word logos. It can also be pronounced logos. They're, pronounced, they're exactly the same thing. You'll hear it different ways. I'll probably say them different ways. But that word has some really powerful connections and pieces to it, right? The word of God is how God moves and acts through the Old Testament. You don't have to look any farther than Genesis 1 to see it. Nine times in Genesis chapter 1, God says this, And God said or God spoke and things happened. He spoke light into the darkness, he spoke life into creation, he spoke life into humanity. Nine different times God said, God's word is action bearing. All through scripture, but Genesis 1 is this incredible account of it that God's word brings things into being. So John makes the connection with God's word being action oriented and bring it into being that God's word. Jesus is God's word. God's words in scripture is also something that never ends. It's eternal. Isaiah 40 says this, right? Flowers fade, right? Grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In Psalm 107, he says that God's word heals and brings life. It says the people cried out to God and God sent his word to heal them and give them life. So all through scripture, God acts through his word, Right? God's word is everlasting, and God's word brings life and healing. And what does John say? He says that Jesus is the logos of God. He is God's spoken word into action and life, everlasting, never-ending, healing, life-giving. This is Jesus. Jesus is the very logos of God. And if there's ever been a moment where we saw this sort of grandeur pop up, it's in this idea that Jesus is not just some creation, some person, but he's the action-oriented, everlasting life of God himself. Now, that word also has some really important connotations to the Jews and Greeks. See, Greek thinkers, philosophy, if you ever read any Greek philosophy, Greek thinkers believed that the word logos, it's actually a Greek word, meant both the spoken and the unspoken word. The spoken word are things that we say. The unspoken word is what happens in here and it's called reason. And the Greeks believed that when you put the spoken word and reason or the unspoken word together, you had what held together the cosmos. They believed that the spoken word and the reason held all life together. All right? And what John's saying to the Greeks, essentially he's saying that the word of God is not just some cosmic thing. An idea, it's not reason, but it is a person. That what holds the entire cosmos together is a person of Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. Now the Jews also deeply believed that God was embodied in his word. Anywhere in the Old Testament, you'll see that God took action in his word, that his word had personal attributes to it. And so John very intentionally takes this idea of word and he ascribes it to Jesus God's action, everlasting, healing, life-giving, holding the cosmos together, embodying himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You begin to see the theology that is kind of poured into these ideas. So the first claim that John makes is that Jesus is the logos of God. And then he follows that up very quickly with two claims that have to be read side by side, otherwise you end up with heresy, right? And he says this, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he starts off and he says, this is the person of Jesus Christ, and he is God's Word, and the Word was with God. Now what that means is that from the beginning, Jesus always was. This is referred to as the preexistence of Christ. The Christ is not some created being that when Mary was pregnant with the infant Jesus, right, or the baby Jesus, this was not the first time that Jesus ever was. Now, this is really important because we're laying the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. And so John says that there was never a time that Jesus wasn't. Jesus was with God from the beginning, from before time began, before the creation of the world, before Genesis account one, where God spoke light and life into the world, right? Jesus was with God. He's laying a foundation for the pre existence of Christ, but he doesn't let it sit there. Because if it just sits there, we get the picture that there are two gods. There's this Jesus who was with God, right? It's where a lot of heresy in the Christian church begins. It begins with thinking that there are two separate or later to become three separate gods that are operating in different modes. Christian theology teaches us that there are not three separate gods, but one God and three separate persons, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. That there's a Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they have different ways and means of acting, but they are the same God. And so John follows that quickly with Jesus always was. He was not created. So the person that walked the earth, that did all these miracles, that's gonna turn water to wine in Cana in just a few chapters, is not a created being. Well, who I'm getting ready to tell you about is not man-made, but he was always with God. And not only that, the word is God. So in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Do you see what John is doing? He is setting deep and rich theological foundations for one true, what will be triune God when we get introduced to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a created being. He's not a human He's not merely created by man, but he was with God and was God from the beginning. In other words, Jesus is the incarnation. And you've heard me define this a lot. The incarnation is the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That when when Jesus breaks into humanity, right around that Christmas time we all celebrate, when Jesus breaks into humanity, it is God in the flesh breaking in to humanity. What, what's so important about this is what John is getting ready to tell everybody who hears his gospel is that the words of Jesus are the words of God. The actions of Jesus are the actions of God himself. John is setting a precedent and a picture for the deity of Jesus Christ. Now you and I get this because we're sitting in church 2,000 years later but imagine being a first century believer How important and foundational it would be to understand that this Jesus was not just some great teacher, not just a rabbi that walked around with a bunch of wise words, teaching people to do things that were kind of countercultural. There were a lot of those rabbis. John is establishing an entire different lineage. Now, the other gospels do it, but they do it in the form of a genealogy. They show that Jesus is traced back to the promised Messiah. John does it by just coming out and say, Jesus is God, and he never wasn't God, and he always was, and he puts it this way, right? The word was with God, the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. So in that first verse, we find out that Jesus is the very word of God, the action-oriented, life-giving, never-ending, sustaining breath of God himself, embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, who was always with God, never was created, and is actually God himself. Therefore, Jesus, the incarnation, is God. His words are God's words, and his actions are God's actions. Three dynamically important claims about Jesus. The fourth one comes in verse three. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, which is a really clumsy sentence because John is being incredibly literal. He's being incredibly literal. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that you can see that was made, right? He's basically saying it both in a positive way and in a negative way, that through him, Jesus, all things were made. Anything that you see that was created was not created without him. Same way of saying, two different ways of saying the exact same thing. Why this is important is because what John is saying is that Jesus is creator God. He's laying the foundation for the ideals behind a new creation. And he's saying Jesus, God, the word was with God, who is God, is also creator. In other words, Jesus is not a created being. Because the creator cannot create himself these are incredibly complicated and deep theological things but they're so important to our christian doctrine because jesus cannot be creator if he's been created right and john says that jesus wasn't created he always was and he was present in the creation of all things when god says that we have made humanity in our image he's speaking to the preexistence of christ the doctrine of the trinity the heavenly host, the whole movement. Jesus didn't come later. Jesus always was, and he was part of creation. And so John is saying, the stories I'm getting ready to tell you about this this Jesus that walks this earth, that turns water to wine, that feeds 5,000, that will die for you, right, is the one that breathed life into your lungs, is the one that formed you in Psalm 139 when he says that you were formed in your mother's womb, that he made your innermost being. That Jesus created you. Set the precedent, the tone for creation, right? The fifth and sixth, I'll go through them quickly. They attach together as well. So Jesus is creator. He's the logos. He was with God. He was God. Jesus is creator. In him, verse four, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Two things, Jesus is life, Jesus is light. All right, now these are going to be incredibly important principles throughout John's entire gospel. And they're not sort of meaningless religious symbols. They are incredibly important. In fact, these are things that Jesus will say about himself. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John eight twelve: Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever is in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is life. He is coming into this dark and broken and sinful world to redeem humanity, that the light of God pierces the darkness. And whoever walks in that light will have life. I am the life. I am true life. The centerpieces for John's gospel are that this world is dark and broken and sinful. And Jesus is the light of God that shines into the darkness. And that through that light, we have the opportunity to break the chains of sin and death and step into eternal life through the person of Jesus Christ. And not life that begins when we die, but life that begins in this very moment. Abundant, Eternal life. So Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word, the action, the life giving, everlasting movement of God Himself, right? He was with God, pre existent forever. There never was a time He wasn't. And He was God, laying the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. He was creator, not created. And He is the life, both eternal and abundant. And he is the light of humanity. But John says something really, really important about the state of the world that I want you to understand. We're going to wrap up with this. It's just just a a lot of stuff to try and just lay out there for this morning. But he says this, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So John spends these verses laying the picture of who Jesus is, and then he has this little tie-in verse. The light, Jesus, shines into the darkness, which is the world, but the darkness the world has not understood the light, Jesus, right? Which most of us have probably heard. But John makes a really important claim here because that word understood is actually a really interesting Greek word. It can be translated in two ways. And I kind of think that John probably meant it in both ways. The NIV translated as understood. Some other versions translated as overcome. But the word actually means to understand with the mind. So I grasp something to understand it with my mind. But that word also means that I grasp grasp something physically with my hand as to destroy it. So it's got two connotations, right? That I can grasp something with my mind and comprehend it, or I can grasp something with my hand and break it or overcome it. And John says this, that the world, the darkness, right, it hasn't understood or overcome the light. In other words, in this dark world, this sinful broken place of which you and I are an incredibly big part of, we don't fully understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. We can't grasp it. But at the same time, we can't overcome it. What that means is that when they seize Jesus, when they, everyone betrays him and they hand him over and he's crucified and killed, darkness, the world, does not overcome God's redemptive plan for humanity. In other words, the world doesn't win. Darkness doesn't win. God is victorious. The world can't understand it. The world can't overcome it. So here's the outlying principle of the first few verses. That in the midst of our darkness and denial, in the midst of our brokenness and our humanity, in the midst of our sinfulness and our running and our questions and our fear and our longing, in the midst of all that this broken and dark world is, which it just is in the midst of that, God's love is so incredibly real for humanity that he steps into creation himself through the person of Jesus Christ because he loves you and he has come for you. John 3.16, which we all know, takes on an incredibly different light when you think about it this way. John 3.16, right, the most famous verse probably in all of scripture. For God so loved the world when you put it in light of John 1, 5, God did not so love nature, but God so loved the creation that is steeped in darkness and denial and betrayal, creation that can't understand or fathom him, creation that that can't seize him and try and destroy him even though they crucified him. That God so loved creation, the world, that he came for it. What that means is that God loves you so deeply. He loves me so deeply that he came for you. That he sent his son Jesus, the embodiment of who he was for you, to rescue, to redeem, to save you. Now this is eternal life. Not that begins on my last breath, but begins on my first breath right this moment. I love you, and I have come for you. When we celebrate communion, this is essentially what we're saying. We're saying that, God, I believe that you stepped into humanity, and you died, and you went to a cross, so that my sin could be redeemed by the blood of you. That you loved me enough to come for me. That you are not a created being, Jesus. That you are God, the incarnation of God and that you gave yourself in the midst of my denial, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my fear, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of all of my questions, you loved me and love me enough to come for me. This morning, as we celebrate communion, we're keeping those truths in our heart and in our mind that this is just not some random table, but this is the embodiment of all that we see played out in John chapter 1. This is the picture of all that we just saw. That the logos, right? That the word of God became flesh for you, for me. And the person of Jesus Christ walked this earth sinless and perfect and died. Not so humanity could just see the love of God, but so that you might know God himself. This is what that table is and what it represents. As we'll see later on when we get there, played out in the book of John, on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the very night that everyone would abandon him, that he would would be handed over, he sat with his disciples, those that he spent the most time with. John himself was present, right? And he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you that when you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. This morning, as always, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a simple or kind of a fancy way of saying when you come forward, you can take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and he, we'll have two stations, one in the back, one in the front. We, we don't do anything here by order. It's just we're chaotic in nature. So as you feel called and led, just stand up and find your way. We'll have members from our prayer team that are back there that would love to pray with you. And then we encourage you to can remain standing and close our time together in worship. But let's pray together. God, I thank you that your word is timeless, that it is powerful, that it is true, that it is living and active. I thank you, God, that this table is the embodiment of every single thing we just read. That the Logos, Jesus, always was. With God, and was God, creator God, is light and life. And you were poured out for me. That Jesus, you loved us, humanity, broken, sinful, dirty humanity. Even the things that we've done wrong this morning, yesterday, whatever that you loved us and you came for us in the person of Jesus. So Lord, as we celebrate this time together, I pray that you would be glorified and exalted. Jesus, Lord Jesus, come. We ask this in your holy and perfect name, amen.